Good morning to you again. On this Resurrection Sunday, I'll invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to step out of our regular series in John just for one week in order to think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the book of 1 Peter. Uh, Some of the men at the church have been going through a Bible study in 1 Peter, so I hope this will be encouraging to you uh, this morning. I hope you turn to chapter 1 with me. We're going to look at verses 3 through 5. So if you would, follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we pray for grace now. We ask for the Holy Spirit's help that we would be able to understand the word of God that you would give us illumination, that we would find the fruit of the Spirit being born in our lives. Faith, joy, hope, peace, gentleness, all of these things, Father, through the work of your Spirit in your Word, bearing fruit in our lives to the glory of your name. Father, we pray particularly today that we would appreciate and embrace uh, anew or afresh the resurrection of Jesus Christ and and the the difference that that makes for a Christian seeking to live in this world. Father, please keep me from error. Please help your word to be clear and plain. Please give your people discernment so that we would all hold fast to the truth, the very truth that is saving us even now for the last day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. He is risen. Friends, that is the most revolutionary sentence in the history of the world. He is risen. Three words and only four syllables announcing the good news that forever changed the course of history. He is risen. Jesus of Nazareth, who just three days earlier breathed his last on a Roman cross, suddenly took breath again. His heart began to beat when just moments before it was stone cold dead. His limbs stretched out the stiffness of death and with new life coursing through his veins, Jesus rose from the dead. He is risen. And the world is forever changed. As Christians, this is the bedrock of our faith. If you are visiting with us this morning, we want you to know that this is the most important thing about us. As a church, we are a resurrection people. We believe that right now, today, April the 17th, in the year of our Lord, 2022, Jesus of Nazareth is alive. And he's reigning from heaven's throne. The church exists because Jesus lives, never to die again. Without the resurrection, there is no church. 
There are only pitiable people who have been duped by a fraud. But through the resurrection, we live. And we announce this good news to the world. He is risen. We are, first and foremost, a resurrection people. For the church, part of the value of Easter Sunday is that it never changes. I don't mean the date of Easter. I can't figure out what sets that. I don't mean the date of Easter, but the truth of Easter. For 2,000 years, the church has celebrated the resurrection of Christ. And though though the world has changed dramatically in 2,000 years, the church's hope remains the same. Our confession has been and continues to be, He is risen. Friends, there is comfort in that continuity. We are not the first people to gather together on a Lord's Day and announce this good news. We stand together with a great cloud of witnesses, the saints from the ages past, and we receive their testimony and the witness of Scripture. We believe that testimony. And so, being here today, we're part of something that's bigger than ourselves. There's comfort in that continuity. The truth of Resurrection Sunday never changes. But at the same time, the world does change. This has occupied my attention this week, and I think it merits our reflection. The world does change. This is always happening to some degree. But there are times when the changing nature of the world is much more apparent. Perhaps we are in such a time right now. It seems that every day brings another indication that life is morphing into something different, even something frightening. Whether it's global conflicts that threaten to redraw the map or or technological innovations that try to redefine humanity, it seems that our always changing world is doing so more rapidly today. At least it seems that way to us. I heard a person say recently that for the last two years it just feels like the ground is shifting underneath our feet. Change, uncertainty, conflict, disillusionment. That's life in the world right now. And that's part of the reason why we have turned to 1 Peter this morning. Just as we are not the first Christians to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, so also we are not the first Christians to live in uncertain times. We're not the first believers to face turbulence and change. The Apostle Peter writes this letter to churches facing turmoil. Honestly, much worse than what we're facing today. The Christians in 1 Peter were suffering Christians. And they did not know how or when the Roman Empire would strike against them. Would Caesar try to wipe out the church? Would their neighbors report them to the authorities? It was a difficult and uncertain Existence. This is why if you keep reading 1 Peter, later in the letter he calls Christians aliens and exiles. This world is not their home. And therein lies the connection with Easter Sunday. Peter writes this letter to remind believers that no amount of hardship, no amount of change, no amount of uncertainty can derail God's purpose for the church. 
even if the entire empire, the entire world were to crash down upon God's people, the church will live, Peter says. The church will endure. How is that possible, we ask? The answer is right there in the very middle of the passage, the end of verse 3. The answer is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is Peter's opening encouragement for the church. We are a resurrection people through and through. And it's that unchanging truth that equips us to live faithfully in an always changing world. So it should be encouraging to us that Peter's goal in writing this letter 2,000 years ago is as relevant today as it was then. The encouragement that these Christians needed is the same encouragement that we need, the unchanging truth of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. So here's our plan for this morning. It's pretty simple. From these opening verses in 1 Peter, I just want to draw your attention to three resurrection realities. Three ways the resurrection of Christ equips us to live faithfully in an always changing world. The first has to do with hope. The second focuses on salvation. And the third deals with faith. How do Christians live faithfully in an always changing world? We live with our feet firmly planted on the unchanging truth that he is not here, he is risen. Three resurrection realities from 1 Peter. Let's think about each one in more detail. We start in verse 3, where we see that Christ's resurrection produces living hope. Christ's resurrection produces living hope. We just noted the context of Peter's letter. He writes to churches facing persecution. But surprisingly, Peter does not begin by addressing those difficult circumstances. He doesn't even begin with what the church needs to do in order to stand firm. Peter doesn't begin with the church at all. Peter begins with what God has already done to save his people. Notice the very God-focused beginning to this letter, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Friends, you can read through the entire New Testament and you would be hard-pressed to find a clearer passage on God's work to save his people. As, as believers, we live because God gave us life. This is why Peter says God gave us life according to his great mercy. This is not something that we deserved. And it is certainly not something that we could ever earn or create on our own. We live because God mercifully gave us life. And for this we praise God. We bless His name. He's caused us to be born again. But you'll notice that Peter quickly goes on to describe what this new life produces. Look again at verse 3. According to God's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. The key here is that word living. Sometimes a little word makes all the difference. Most people tend to think of hope 
as something akin to wishful thinking. I hope my team wins the championship. I hope I get that job promotion. And oftentimes, those hopes don't come about, do they? Our hopes are often dashed. Our wishful thinking proves to be just that, more wish than reality. And in the end, we're just left with greater disappointment. But friends, that's not at all what Peter means by hope in verse 3. The hope of verse 3 is not wishful thinking. It's a living hope. The sense here is of confident expectation. Our hope is alive. It's sure. It's thriving. Our hope cannot fail. It cannot be dashed. It's not the false hope that burns you in the end. It's a living hope. Because it's given to us by the same God who gave us new life. Of course, that raises the question, what is this living hope? If it can't be dashed and if it doesn't fail, I want it. So what is it? Well, most fundamentally, our living hope is the new life we have received from God. This is why Peter begins verse 3 as he does. Before God gave us new life, before God caused us to be born again, we were without hope in the world. We were lost Dead in our sins. We could not give life to ourselves. And tragically, we didn't even know that we needed life. But God, being rich in mercy, gave us new life. And since this new work, this new life is God's work and not our work, nothing will ever quench it. That's why it's a living hope. If you're a Christian this morning, nothing will ever come in and snuff out the life God created in you by His mercy. Nothing. No amount of global conflict, no amount of political upheaval, no degree of cultural change can ever steal the hope of a Christian. So in the most important sense, this is our living hope, that we have new life by the mercy of God. Even so, how can we know for sure that this living hope will endure? Like I said at the outset, the world is a frightening place. And I would, I would be misleading you if I were to stand up here and say, Hey, guess what? If you're a Christian, the world's not that, it's not, it's not really that scary. It's not that frightening. That would be misleading to you. The world is sometimes a frightening place. So how can we know for sure that this living hope will endure. If we're honest, it's hard to believe that our hope is living when so much is changing and coming undone. So how can we know for sure that our hope will live? That's a great question. Notice where Peter anchors our living hope, the end of verse 3. According to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Friends, the key here is to see how Peter applies the resurrection to the life of the believer. For the Apostle Peter, the resurrection of Christ is the great fact of history. It's the turning point of God's redemptive plan. Peter envisions all of redemptive history from start to finish bound up in the resurrection of Jesus. So when Christ rose from the dead, he did not, listen to me on this, 
He did not make salvation possible. He accomplished salvation once and for all. The empty tomb is the amen to Jesus' cry from the cross, it is finished. He did not die to make salvation possible. He died and rose again to accomplish the salvation of God's people. And friends, that is why the hope is living in verse 3. That's why it's a living hope. Because Christ lives never to die again. We have confidence that our life with God will endure to the final day. In a way, in a way, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your resurrection, your resurrection from the dead began 2,000 years ago. With the resurrection of Jesus. When Christ rose, he ensured that each and every one of his people will rise to eternal life with God as, as well. Since nothing can put Jesus back in the grave, there is nothing that can stop God from finishing the life he started in each of his people. Our hope is living because Christ lives. That's how we know for sure. Because the empty tomb is the amen to the cross. Friends, I want you to think about what a practical difference this makes for a Christian living in a changing and troubling world. Listen, I'm, I'm a pastor at heart. And that means what grips me when I walk into this room every Sunday is the reality that each of you who professes faith in Christ belongs to the Lord Jesus and on some level you've been entrusted to my and the other elders' care. And I want to ensure that each of God's people makes it to the end faithfully. So I want you to see what a difference it makes for the resurrection of Christ for how you're going to live tomorrow. I'm going to try to give you an example of, of, of the difference that this would make. Many of you have prob are probably familiar with, with what is sometimes called the health and wealth gospel. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's the false teaching that if you just trust God, He will provide you with a life of unbroken success and prosperity. Never mind the fact that 10 of the 11 apostles died as martyrs. So no trouble, no heartache, no disease, just health and wealth. Sadly, many people around the world mistakenly believe that's what it means to have a living hope. Here's what makes the health and wealth gospel a problem. It not only twists the Bible, but it also cheapens the living hope that we do actually have in the gospel. It makes it cheap. Think about it. Think about this. If our living hope can only be fulfilled in physical blessings in the world, then that's a pretty flimsy hope. There's a house that we drive by sometimes out where we live and it burned recently. If your living hope is the stuff that God gives you and your house burns, that's a flimsy hope. If God can only display His goodness to you by piggybacking on material prosperity, then your hope would only last as long as your possessions. That's cheap. And it's not going to keep anybody in the faith. The living hope of the gospel is not the promise of unbroken ease and success. The living hope of the gospel is not the promise of a life free from hardship. 
The living hope of the gospel is something better than that. It's that no matter the hardship, no matter the difficulty, no matter the earthly loss, God will not lose his people. He will not fail to bring to the end those he has brought to life in the beginning. It's Easter. But the reality is that I know many of us came to church on Easter Sunday with the same hardships, the same heartache, and the same difficulties that we had last Sunday that we're going to have next Sunday. Look, I know that there are some of you today who walked in, and if we were to get you to tell us the truth, your faith is as fragile as a thread. And if that's you, if that's you today, I want you to know that the gospel does not give you some cheap promise that rests on slogans and platitudes. God's promise to you today and every day is nothing less than the resurrection of his own son. We have a living hope because Christ lives and we live in him. So whatever you take away today, I hope that it will be this, that Christ's resurrection produces in you a living hope that will help you walk by faith. That's the first resurrection reality. The second follows immediately in verse 4. Christ's resurrection guarantees final salvation. Christ's resurrection guarantees final salvation. So far we've been thinking about the present, about walking by faith in this present world, but in verse 4, Peter shifts gears a little bit to think in future terms. Actually, salvation in 1 Peter is almost all of the time thought about in future terms. Notice what Peter says, God has caused us to be born again, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So God has caused believers to be born again to a living hope. And this living hope, Peter says in verse 4, is also our inheritance. When the Father gave us life and adopted us as his children, we became his heirs with Christ. And we now stand to receive an inheritance from God himself. Now there's a rich Old Testament background to this idea of an inheritance. It's more than we can go into today. So here's just a little bit. Remember, in the Old Testament, God promised Israel that they would inherit the promised land. Right? They would inherit the land. And they would dwell in the land in covenant communion with God. That was always the purpose of God's inheritance in the Old Testament. The people would dwell with God. He would be their God and they would be His people. So when Peter speaks in verse 4 of an inheritance, he has, some, he has something in mind that is much bigger than, than a physical inheritance. He's drawing on the Old Testament to recall this promise of dwelling with God, being in communion, fellowship with God in His presence. He has in mind something greater than a physical inheritance. How do we know that he has in mind something greater than a physical inheritance. Because of how he describes it in verse 4. Look again at those descriptions. 
imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Friends, those qualities transcend anything on earth. Imperishable, the inheritance can't be corrupted. Undefiled, it can't be tainted. Unfading, it can never lose its value. Taken together, Peter's point is that the believer's inheritance is perfectly incorruptible. It's priceless and eternally so. Now, that's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? I remember when the economy collapsed in 2008. I remember watching my dad's company endure just incredible financial distress like so many other people's businesses. And it was, honestly, it was a bit terrifying to see what he and my mom had worked so hard for just be lost in a matter of weeks, a matter of months. So when Peter talks about this incorruptible inheritance that can never fade, it can't be tainted, can't be tarnished, it, it's, hard, it's hard for us to imagine how can this work? If this inheritance is so priceless, wh- where, where could we actually keep it safe? Notice the final phrase in verse 4. Where is this incorruptible inheritance? It is kept in heaven, Peter says, for you. It's kept in heaven. I can't think of a more comforting thought for Christians sojourning through this fallen world. Nothing can steal our inheritance for it's kept in heaven itself. In fact, to steal the believer's inheritance, you would have to catch God napping. You would have to catch God off guard. And you would sooner keep the sun from rising than fool our heavenly father. No enemy, no circumstance will ever snatch our inheritance from us. It's kept by God himself. The world... The world may take many things from you, friend. The world may take many things from you, but it cannot take our final inheritance with the triune God. And the reason our inheritance is kept in heaven is because of Christ's resurrection and ascension. I've preached this passage a handful of times before, but this week I learned something new. That's why it's always good to read passages that you've read before. I learned something new. This is what I learned new. It just encourages me. I hope it encourages you. Think about those three adjectives in verse 4. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now think about those adjectives in connection with the resurrection of Jesus. In what kind of body was Christ raised from the dead? An imperishable body. What was sown is perishable. What is reaped is imperishable, 1 Corinthians 15. What did Christ's resurrection prove about his life and his obedience? That he is undefiled, never tainted by sin. And what is the extent of Jesus' resurrection glory? It's unfading. Having defeated the grave, nothing will ever put him in the grave again. It will never lose its luster. So do you see the connection Our salvation is like a priceless jewel. And each facet shines with brilliance because of Jesus' resurrection. We have this incredible inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And what guarantees that salvation is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His imperishable resurrection body. 
his sinless, undefiled life, his unfading glory as the Redeemer. Each aspect of his work is like a facet of a jewel. And when seen together, the brilliance is this incorruptible inheritance kept in heaven for us. And so if you're a Christian today, if you're repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus, this is the guarantee of Resurrection Sunday. Because Christ lives, your final salvation is secure. God has saved you from the penalty of sin. He is saving you right now from the power of sin. And one glorious day, He will save you forever from the presence of sin. As sure as Christ lives, your final inheritance with God is secure. It's kept safe in the resurrection of Jesus. That's the confidence that every believer has today. Jesus' resurrection guarantees our final salvation. That brings us to verse 5 and a final resurrection reality for Easter Sunday. Number three, Christ's resurrection anchors persevering faith. Christ's resurrection anchors persevering faith. Peter has just described how the believer's final salvation is kept safe in heaven, but now Peter adds to this idea of protection. Notice the shift in verse 5. You, Peter says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So, not only is our inheritance being guarded in heaven, but believers themselves are being guarded for the inheritance. Christians then have this twofold layer of protection. God is keeping our inheritance and God is keeping us. But again, I want you to see how Peter's teaching is aimed at making a difference in how you live tomorrow. So look again at verse 5 and ask yourself, how is God's protection being worked out in my life? You say that God is protecting me, how is he doing that? The answer, Peter says, is through faith. Through faith, believers are being guarded by God's power through faith. Friends, that is a powerful encouragement for the daily Christian life. Peter is telling us that there is a mysterious and mighty cooperation between the Christian's faith in Jesus and the power of God to keep that Christian. Faith in Christ is the means through which God's power is guarding the believer. We, we tend to think of faith as this passive thing where I simply trust what the Bible says is true about Jesus. And to be sure, saving faith is never less than trusting what the Bible says is true about Jesus. Saving faith is never less than that. But verse 5 is telling us that saving faith is no passive thing. Faith in Christ is active. Faith in Christ is even protective. 
Every moment that we trust in Christ is an evidence of God's mighty power protecting us and keeping us and securing us for, for the final day. So God is guarding you, Christian. He's guarding you. And he's doing so through the very faith that he's giving you to trust in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is why I stand up behind this pulpit every Sunday and call you to trust in Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to be redundant. And I'm certainly not ignoring the many challenges that come against believers in the course of the week. Week after week, I call us all to trust in Christ because that's where God's power is found. Through faith. That's how God keeps us to the end. In fact, the most necessary and practical thing that each Christian can do in any situation is to believe in Jesus Christ. We continue believing because we trust that God's power is working in that very faith that he gives to us. This is how you should think of every day that you live as a Christian. When you wake up tomorrow and you find in your heart and mind even the smallest seed of faith that Jesus is God's son who laid down his life for you and rose again for your justification. When you wake up tomorrow and find even that smallest seed of faith present in your heart and mind, what you have in that moment is the evidence of God's grace and power in your life keeping you for the last day. So as you sit there on the edge of your bed like I do and you try to wake up and you try to think about all the things you have to do that day, even that smallest mark of faith is God's way of reminding you that he's keeping you today for the last day and he's keeping you through faith in Christ. So friends, we should never, we should never overlook or underestimate it or underestimate the amazing grace that it is to believe in Jesus. That's how God is keeping you for the very end. So to encourage your continued faith, I want you to note the character of God in verse 5. Notice how Peter describes salvation as ready to be revealed in the last time. In, in the context of this passage, the salvation in verse 5 is the same as the inheritance in verse 4. They're the same thing. So this salvation is ready to be revealed. Here's the question. Ready to be revealed by whom? Well, by God, of course. God is ready to reveal salvation, Peter says. God is ready to bring it to pass. The final outcome is not in doubt. It's already accomplished and the final deliverance of it is soon to occur. God is ready to reveal it. Where do we see God's readiness to save? Peter says that God is ready to deliver his people. Again, let's just be honest that sometimes it doesn't look like God is ready. Sometimes it might look like God is slow. Peter says that God is ready. So where do we see the readiness of God to answer and save his people. We see it, friends, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection is the clearest evidence of God's readiness to save. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When you're tempted to think that God is slow, friends, remember his work to raise Jesus from the dead. Because God, because Christ conquered the grave, we know that nothing can derail the saving power of God, and therefore we trust him. Having crushed death in Christ, God will not fail to bring salvation to pass. And therefore, therefore, we believe his word. We walk by faith. Friends, what I want you to take away today, I have one aim in preaching this morning. What I want you to take away today is that the reality of Easter Sunday is not important for only one day a year. The reality of the resurrection is the anchor for your faith every day of the year. Every day we are a resurrection people. And it's that action of God in history that holds us fast. It anchors our faith. I've spent most of this sermon talking to Christians. As the church, we're called to walk by faith in a changing world. And so I want to ensure that on Resurrection Sunday, God's people are encouraged to continue walking by faith. I've spent most of this sermon talking, talking to believers. If you're not a Christian this morning, and that means you're, you have not turned from your sin and repentance and you've not placed your trust in Jesus, Christ, in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to save you, if you're not a Christian this morning, I hope that what you've heard today is how central the resurrection is to not only the Bible, but to the whole course of human history. The resurrection is the great fact of history. Sometimes skeptics will say, prove it to me. And God would say, I did. The resurrection is the great fact of history. Every person who has ever lived will have his or her eternity defined by the resurrection of Jesus. And that includes you. For Christians, Jesus' resurrection means salvation and eternal life. But if you're not a Christian... If you've come to church today with a friend or with a family member and, and, you're, not, and you're not a believer, you're not trusting in Christ, if you're not a, if you're not a Christian, Jesus' resurrection is still the defining point of your existence too. On the last day when you stand before God, it is only faith in the risen Christ that will bring you into eternal life. Even today, if you're not a Christian... It's only faith in the risen Christ that will give you life and a relationship with the living God. So if you don't know the Lord today, the one thing that you must reckon with is his resurrection. You may be thinking, yeah, but I've got all these other questions about all these other parts of the Bible that I'm not sure are true. Those are good questions. I understand those questions. What I would say is this is the question that you have to answer first. You have to reckon with his resurrection. By rising from the dead, Jesus demonstrated that he alone can save sinners and bring them to God. 
By rising from the dead, Jesus demonstrated that he alone can open the way into God's presence. If you're not a believer this morning, this is the message of the Bible. And it's the message that our church is praying you will hear. That God, according to his great mercy, gives new life and living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So won't you turn from your sin today? If you don't know the Lord, won't you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, who is the very power of God to save? Please, do not let Easter Sunday pass without considering the truth and life of Jesus Christ, and particularly your accountability to Him. He is risen. It's the most revolutionary sentence in the history of the world. Blessed be our God and Father, Christ is risen, and through His resurrection we have a living hope, a sure salvation, and an anchor for faith that will not fail. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, on some level it feels like a foolish thing for mortal men to proclaim that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. What do we know about the power of God? All that we know, Father, we have heard from your scriptures. All that we believe is by grace. We have no claim upon you. Our only hope, Father, is the mercy that you have given us in Christ. Father, I pray that your spirit even now would bear fruit from your word. You promise us, Father, that your word goes out and it does not come back void to you. It always accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. We pray, Father, for your will to be done. We pray for that will to be done in our own hearts and in the hearts of others. We pray for life. We pray for the strengthening of faith. We pray, Father, for the glory of your Son, in whose name we make these requests. Amen.